I'm here with Father Edward Looney, and he's the pastor of two parishes up in Green Bay, Wisconsin Diocese, mm -hmm. and uh, you're a theologian at the Shrine of Our Lady of Good Help. And I wanted to ask you about this shrine because it's, is it the only officially approved apparition in the United States? That's correct. Yeah. So, uh, you know, lots of people go on pilgrimage. They go to Fatima, they go to Lourdes, they go to Nock, they go all over Europe to visit Marian apparition sites. And now here in our own country, people can come to an approved Marian apparition site. It wasn't like the apparition happened just yesterday. It happened back in 1859, but it took over 150 years for it to get approved. Uh, the local bishop in 2010 approved the apparition as worthy of belief, although not obligatory among the faithful. Uh, but a very beautiful story about a Belgian immigrant and Mary's apparition. Mm. Well, can you give us the run through on that? <laughs> sure. So when Mary appeared, well, maybe we'll back up. So. The visionary in Wisconsin is uh, a woman named Adele Bryce, uh, and the apparition occurred in 1859. So uh, a lot of times with Marian apparitions, Mary appears to a child or children, but here in, Wis er, in Wisconsin, she uh, chose to appear to a 28-year-old Belgian immigrant. But that Belgian immigrant, Adele, she had a meager education. She hadn't... Uh, she dropped out of school to help her family. She immigrated to the United States at the age of 24 during the wave of uh, immigration, especially from Belgium. Her family settled in Wisconsin and there she lived on the family farm for, year, for, for the next four or five years until the apparition. And then one day she was helping her family. She was going to uh, the local gristmill with a grain of wheat and she was carrying the, the sack of wheat and along that trail between two trees, a maple and a hemlock tree, Mary appears. And, uh, and so she doesn't say anything. Adele's alone, sees this woman, she quickly vanishes. The lady leaves, Adele goes on her way, tells her family they thought maybe it's a poor soul in purgatory. And so the apparition uh, was just that. But the next day, the next Sunday rather, uh, on October 9th, Mary appears again. And this time Adele isn't alone. She's with her sister. She's with a neighbor. They're on their way to church. And Mary appears and Adele says, there's that woman again. She doesn't say anything. The woman doesn't. And again, quickly vanishes. This time Adele knows she has to do something more. And so she asks the priest after mass, what is it that I'm supposed to do? I've seen this woman. And the priest said, well, ask her in God's name, who are you? And what do you want of me? So Adele's walking home now from church. And as she comes to those same two trees, Mary, sat, or Mary appears again. And so Adele asks that question, who are you in God's name? What do you want of me? And Mary begins to speak. She says, I'm the queen of heaven who prays for the conversion of sinners. And I wish you to do the same. You received Holy Communion this morning and that is well, but you must do more. Make a general confession and offer your communion for the conversion of sinners. For if they do not repent and convert, my son will be obliged to punish them. Now, the two women that were with Adele, they spoke up. They said, Adele, who is it? Why can't we see her as you do? Adele tells them, kneel. The woman says she's the queen of heaven. So the two women kneel and Mary quotes scripture. She quotes the words of her son, blessed are they who believe without seeing. And then Mary asks Adele a question. She says, why are you standing here in idleness while, you are work while your companions are working in the vineyard of my son? And Adele said to her, well, what am I supposed to do? I know so little myself. And Mary said, gather the children in this wild country, teach them what they need to know for salvation, how to make the sign on the cross, how to approach the sacraments, 
This is what I wish you to do. Go and fear nothing. And that was the message that Mary spoke to Adele. And that was a message then that she began to live uh, from that day forward as she gathered the children, as she went to homes and taught uh, the children in their homes. And later then she founded a convent of, of third order Franciscans. Uh, there was a school and, uh, and then uh, the, the children began to come to her for instruction at the school and with the sisters. So they were third order. They wore habits. They made vows. Yeah. So, um, yeah, today our understanding of third order and what they would look like mm -hmm. is definitely different than what it looked like in the late 1800s. So in a lot of different writings, even the bishop himself called Adele Sister Adele. She, he mm -hmm. wrote calling her Sewer Adele. And uh, she wore a habit. So if you look up a picture, Adele Bryce, you'll see her. She's in a habit. And uh, so that was the that was the the dr typical dress uh, of the third order of the day. I think we can uh, call to mind Saint Catherine of Siena, who was a third order Dominican, who was a sister and lived with the habit and so forth. So, so this wasn't uncommon for for Adele at that time. And why was Adele Adele particularly devout or? What was, was that a devout family or? Sure, so uh, that's a loaded question. And, and one that I, I've conjectured some, which is just merely opinion, I don't have facts to back it up. We do know for certain that Adele was a pious young woman. Notice when Mary spoke, she said, why are you standing here in idleness while your companions are working in the vineyard of my son? And Mary says that because Adele, when she was a young girl said, I want to be a sister. I want to work in the foreign missions. When she immigrates at the age of 24 to the United States, she goes to the parish priest and says, I want to be a nun, but now my family wants to go to the States. And so the priest said, well, go to the States. And if that's to happen, it'll be realized in America. And so she's obedient. She comes to America. So she has this great fervor, religious fervor. She was going to mass on the morning of October 9th. Now, October 9th, 1859, there wasn't a Saturday anticipatory mass. People fasted until they received Holy Communion. So her family, it doesn't say anything about her family. Did they go to an earlier Mass? Maybe. Mm -hmm. But there were Belgians, Adele wasn't one of them, but there were Belgians who stopped practicing the faith when they came to the States. And that made me wonder, well, did Mary appear to Adele because her parents had fallen away and now they're being renewed in faith? And as Mary appears and gives the message, teach the children, well, the faith is being renewed in the settlement of this immigrant community now because Adele is teaching the children their faith and, and uh, w the lack of practicing the faith is being remedied. And it was like a Belgian community, French speaking? Or... Yeah, so they were Walloon uh, speaking Belgians. So um, yes, from the Walloon part. So Belgium is divided into the Walloon and Flanders, the Flemish speaking. Mm -hmm. Walloon is a dialect, really a French. So, mm -hmm. you know, in, in French we say bonjour, uh, bonjour to say good day. But in Belgian or in Walloon, they say Beju. So, mm. so they, um, you know, it's their own little dialect. Even, you know, think of Lourdes. Uh, there, there was a special dialect that was being spoken in that area where, where Bernadette was from. And that was the language Mary spoke to Bernadette in. Would she teach in that dialect or in English or... The, you know, so there isn't a lot of written record about the apparition or, you know, post-apparition. Yeah. Um, we, what we do know is Adele didn't speak or write English very well. And when mm -hmm. she traveled, when she would ask people for begging missions and so forth, she would, uh, she would bring a translator. So, so yeah. I think, yes, definitely she, she spoke in Walloon. 
Question is, did Mary speak to her in La Luna? Did she speak, you know, in what language did, did Adele hear the Blessed mm -hmm. Mother? Again, we don't necessarily, uh, I, I don't have that information uh, yeah. known to me. So, so yeah. it's kind of one of those unknown variables. Did she stay in that area? Yeah, so after the apparition, uh, she, she lived just, you know, close to where the apparition was. And um, she would walk within a, a 30 mile radius of the area and teach the faith, knock on doors of complete strangers and say, you know, let's uh, let me teach your children and I'll do some chores for you. That's how serious mm -hmm. she took her mandate from the Blessed Mother. Uh, but then eventually she settled down and founded that convent and, and just lived where the shrine is today. And so took up residence there. Uh, so she always remained there. Interesting, you know, because we think about other Marian apparitions like uh, Bernadette Subaru and when Bernadette, she goes off uh, to a convent in Navarre in France. And, and so she isn't living in close proximity to the apparition anymore. But for Adele, the apparition was her mission. Uh, wow. The message was the mission. And, and so she took it upon herself to carry it out. Right. How, how long did she live and did she suffer a lot in her life? Yeah, so Adele was actually physically infirm. And if you look at pictures of her, she's, she's not a very attractive woman. Uh, she actually lost the sight of an eye uh, when she was a child. Uh, so she was disfigured. She had an accident with a lie. So um, she, she wasn't smart. Uh, so she did suffer. Um, at, at the very end, she fell off a, a horse, I believe. And, uh, and so that really kind of paralyzed her in a sense. And, and that kind of led to her death in 1896. And so she would have been... Roughly how? Uh, she died at the age of 65, if, if my mind and my memory serves me correctly without the data in front of me. Did that community continue there after death? Yeah, so this is a, the sad story. And, yeah. you know, as we think about one day maybe Adele being a saint, I, I think it's actually a negative criterion for her cause for sainthood, actually. But um, after, the, after her death, um, the community disbanded not a few years later, maybe four or five years. Hmm. And, uh, and so, you know, part of the historical record says that the reason it was, was that because Adele was kind of handicapped at the end, she made some poor decisions in terms mm -hmm. of leadership and, and, and people left the community. The, the thing with the third order and living in this community was they were not technically vowed to a life of stability. They could come and go and leave and whatnot. So, right. um, so it was kind of a fluid life. There were some sisters that remained with Adele for to the very end, and they're buried next to her in the cemetery where, where Adele was buried. So the sisters that remained, they went on to join a convent that was within, you know, almost a stone's throw away, you know, hmm. probably 10 miles uh, wow. from the apparition. I actually love stories like that where it looks like human failure or something. You know, I always find that encouraging to see saintly people persevere sure. in difficulties like that. But uh, why Wisconsin? We got, we've got a, one of our friars is from Wisconsin and I always tease him. It's, it's like upper Midwest wholesomeness. I don't think of it as wild country. Sure. <laughs> yeah, you know what? Uh, I was just with a, a priest named Monsignor Stuart Swetland and he, he, he jokingly said, he's like, I always love that message because because he's from Illinois, and mm -hmm. so he's like, I love that message because Mary calls Wisconsin, you know, a wild country. <laughs> but, you know, of course it wasn't civilized then, it wasn't developed. It yeah. was really a frontier land uh, when Mary appeared. Yeah. Um, I, I think Mary appears in Wisconsin, you know, well, 
for, for a few different reasons, look at any of these apparitions. I remember driving to Knock uh, in Ireland when I visited there. I, I rented a car, drove there. I'm just like, boy, surely enough, every apparition is in some like godforsaken place where it's so hard to get to. And, and that's the case with Champion even today. It's, you know, 30, 30 minutes, 25 minutes from Green Bay. It's not that close. You have to, rent, you know, rent a car, all these things. But it's literally in the middle of farmland. It's not mm. developed. Um, it's not a developed area. And, uh, but this is the places Mary seems to choose. And uh, I think Mary chose that place and chose Adele because of the situation of the faith of that immigrant community mm. that Mary comes to renew the faith. Yeah. I guess just the amazing thing, it just seems so shocking that it would be done through like an apparition. I mean, that's a big deal. You know? Yeah, definitely. And, yeah, well, God's ways are not our ways and are mysterious to us. And, you know, sometimes it takes one of those big aha moments in our life for God to break in and intervene. And, and uh, for, for Adele, even for her to respond to that call to religious life, well, that was her response after the apparition of fulfilling that childhood dream of being a sister, of working yeah. in the missions. You know, our lady says, uh, you know, why are you standing in idleness while your companions are working in the vineyard of my son? Well, well, she was in a foreign land. And so she could uh, bring the message to her own people in this foreign country. And, and that's what she does. And you think that's the heart of the message is to evangelize, catechize, labor in the vineyard? That's what everybody wants to focus on, I would say. <laughs> People love the fact that Mary says, gather the children in this wild country and teach them the faith because yeah. it's catechetical, it's yeah. evangelical, it's missionary discipleship. Yeah. And, and I, I agree with you. I am right there with mm -hmm. you uh, on this evangelical component. But I also think that we're remiss if we ignore the beginning of the apparition that Mary says, I'm the queen of heaven who prays for the conversion of sinners. I wish you to do the same. So it's a message of prayer. You received Holy Communion this morning, so there's this commendation to Adele for going to Mass, receiving Communion, but you must do more. Make a general confession, go to the sacraments, and offer your Communion for the conversion of sinners. I think the spiritual component is very important, one that's forgotten. The realization is that every time that we go to Communion, we can offer that intention, that we can offer our Holy Communion for someone in our life, for their conversion, for their healing, for whatever our intention might be. And uh, so, so I think that's kind of the forgotten aspect. You pair it though. So Adele is being sent out as a missionary. And so Mary says, first spiritually prepare yourself. Pray for the conversion of sinners. That means you're praying for the people you're going to be working with. Pray for the conversion of sinners. Go to confession. You're gonna teach them how to approach the sacrament. So go to confession yourself, be forgiven, and then mm -hmm. receive Holy Communion, be strengthened by the grace of that sacrament. So I think there's a very much a sacramental component to the message. Do you think there's something significant about being a general confession? Yeah, you know, that's an, inter you know, that's an interesting uh, point. It's not just make a confession, but confess all the sins of your life, all right. the things that you need to confess. Yeah. Um, yeah, I haven't dwelt much on yeah. that. I, I know that one theologian, Father Fred Miller, kind of, uh, in a paper that he gave, he um, kind of dwelt on that for, for a few paragraphs, just explaining what a general confession was and why that, what that might mean. There are other variations of the message that aren't the approved message that we put out, but, um, but one of them says that, you know, Adele was to prepare herself for nine days to make like a novena. 
you know, so so that's not the official message, mm. but you know that that aspect somehow that got lumped in there, and so in, yeah. in the oral history of the story. Right. Right. Let me ask you just some some questions. You you're working on your license. You're writing a paper on the assumption. Um, tell us about the significance of the assumption. Why you chose that? Yeah, I think that the assumption is a neglected aspect of, of uh, Marian theology. In fact, um, that's what a, pre, uh, a Mariologist told me. And uh, so I, I chose to write on the assumption really because it's been something that's fascinated me. And, you know, I'm a parish priest, I'm a pastor, and, and you know, to write a thesis is hard work and I'm doing it in the parish. And I knew that I had already written four or five papers on assumption theology and that I had a good grasp of it. And I thought that it would behoove me to kind of work in that area. And uh, I think the meaning of the assumption is that where, where, what Jesus does for Mary, that then he wants to do for us. So Mary has assumed body and soul into heaven. And so where, where Jesus has gone, where Mary has preceded us, well, that's where we'll go too. And so at the end of our at the end of our life, our soul will go to heaven. And then at the end, at the final call, when at the resurrection of the body, well, we'll experience what uh, what Mary experienced. That you know this this uh, bodily kind kind of a bodily assumption. I, I guess we talk about the privileges of Mary, and we say that the immaculate conception is a singular privilege of Mary. That it's hers alone to be immaculately conceived. But when we talk about the assumption, we only call it her privilege because it's the privilege of all believers. And so I think it really becomes an icon of Mary for the church and for who we are and what we're striving for and where we want to go. Wow. And part of it, right, is that she did not suffer corruption. Yeah. Right? So, that, so would that be the privilege then, I yeah, guess? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, so that, that would be her singular privilege that yeah. she did not experience the corruption yeah. of the tomb. There's great debate uh, in, in uh, theology, especially in the 1950s when, when the Holy Father declared the Assumption of Dogma. Mm -hmm. uh, the question was, did Mary die? And in the document on the Assumption, uh, the, the Holy Father leaves it vague. He does not answer the question. The dogma says at the end of Mary's life, mm -hmm. doesn't define what the end is. And so, mm -hmm. you know, the, the Thomists will put forward the immortalist position that because Mary didn't suffer sin because she was immaculately conceived, because she is not the redeemer, that Jesus has to experience death to redeem it, Mary didn't have to. And so that she was just taken up body and soul. Uh, so that's the immortalist position. Another position would be that Mary just fell asleep and then was taken up. The other position would be uh, the uh, that Mary passes, that she falls asleep, is placed in the tomb, and then is assumed body and soul from the tomb. And uh, some iconography uh, in, shows this. So we see it in, in, in paintings, iconography, the artistic imagination. Um, there's, some, there's something to that, I think, because the... Uh, so some of the early traditions of the church, like Maximus the Confessor, who writes it in the seven or eight hundreds, he he writes the a kind of the first biography of Mary called the Life of the Virgin, bringing together all the traditions from the Prote from the Gospels to the Protoevangelium of James, to the homilies of John Damascene, and so many others. That um, that the tradition he presents is is that she that there, you know there was like a funeral that they carried her to the tomb and she was placed in the tomb and then 
Four days later, not three, but four days later, the tomb is open. Thomas arrives from India. You know, they, you know, that's the story, right? And they open the tomb, and there she is. She's uh, uh, not there, and yeah. uh, assumed body and soul. So, you know, what what do we believe? It's open to interpretation, and uh, you so can you, you can you maintain that she died, though. You right? can, yeah, yeah it yeah. would be a legitimate yeah. position. Now, I don't know if you like, does, do we say that Jesus suffered some corruption before the resurrection or not really? Or? <laughs> yeah, no, well, I don't think that, you know, that's an aspect of Christology, I suppose, that I haven't ventured in. Yeah, yeah. But I would say that, that Jesus does not. Yeah. Uh, but his death redeems death. Yeah. So that, that was sufficient. But in the gospel, Lazarus was in the tomb for, for a few days, right. four days, five right. days, and there was already yeah. the stench, the odor yeah. that yeah. came forth from the tomb. So, yeah. um, but uh, of course, Jesus descends into hell, but, yeah. but yeah. all of that. But yeah. uh, I, a good question for, yeah. for somebody yeah. to look at. I wonder what someone... That was, that was kind of my take that I, I thought too, well, if Jesus died, you know, then certainly, I think you could say Mary died. Like, I understand why... You wouldn't exalt her yeah. above, the, but you know whatever sure. the traditions are. And that, yeah, the oldest traditions, to me, that gives a lot of credence to that. You know, what did they first yeah. say? Yep. <laughs> but um, and two, like the assumption, um, something I think about sometimes. I try to preach about too is that, you know, if we say like Jesus, his redemption's complete, fully. Uh, sufficient for our salvation is death, resurrection. It seems like a fittingness that we have a, a human being there to receive that and to have the, the graces and the blessings of that. That, you know, if we have the full, we have the Redeemer's death, and we also have like the accomplishment of the goal, you know, the transformed yes. humanity, you, you say it's totally complete there on Calvary and the resurrection. That's what I, I thought was kind of a fittingness. I don't know why that appeals to me, but just that kind of fulfillment in Mary, you know, complete ultimate completion in Mary. Sure. Yeah. yeah. So, so Jesus as a divine person uh, is different than Mary, of course, because Mary, Mary is a human person. So that's why we can relate to Mary. Why uh, she gives us an ideal for us to follow. You know, even talking about the Assumption, uh, Saint Joseph, there was a. There, there was a movement that maybe he was assumed, you know, mm -hmm. it never really took off, but, but it was a, a segment of, of Josephology that, that people were advancing, that yeah. this possibility um, that, that Joseph might have. Mm -hmm. um, but there, there is something, but there's something special as we think even about Joseph dying and uh, that Jesus was there, that, that Mary was there. And, uh, and so that's why he's the patron of a holy death that, mm -hmm that in, in Jesus's death, the redemption is completed. And then we see the holy deaths of, of Mary and, and Joseph. Think of the deaths of the saints who repeat the name of Jesus yeah. or who say a prayer. It's, yeah. it's a, a very beautiful thing to, to contemplate, like the end of our life, the end of their life, the end of, of these holy people's lives. Yeah. And your love for Mary, your desire to study uh, the theology behind her, is that rooted in some experiences you've had or what motivates you? Yeah, <laughs> great question. I, you know, I have a, a memory of always loving the Blessed Virgin from a very young age. Uh, I, you know, I often joke with people that I came out of the womb loving Mary because I, I don't remember a time that I didn't. But there, 
it wasn't because I, I grew up in a very overly devotional house and we had images of the Blessed Virgin and statues like in every nook and cranny of the house. It was far from it. My, my mother didn't really practice faith. My father left before I was born. I lived with my grandmother and my mother. So, so a very non-traditional family. But it was my grandmother who was the religious one. She took me to daily mass during the summers when I was a kid. Uh, she was the one that prayed the rosary. She watched EWTN, you know. So um, that that was the inspiration. And, and she for, forced you to watch it yeah, too, right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I watched Life on the Rock when I was a kid. Yeah. Um, uh, I think it was, you, you originally was on like Sunday nights and then it came to yeah, Thursday nights. Right, and right. Yeah, I remember that transition. Yeah, yeah. And, but um, yeah, I... You know, my mother was sometimes absent in my life. And uh, it's something that I've opened up to more recently. But like when I was a young kid, I was removed from the house sometimes. Like social services came and said, like, your mother is unfit. You have mm -hmm. to go live with a foster family for the weekend and mm -hmm. while we sort this out. And and so there was, a you know, a, so some quasi neglect there. Mm -hmm. Right. And and so sometimes I wonder if the love that I fostered for the Blessed Virgin was because uh, of that void in my life from maternal affection. And, uh, and so that Mary filled as my spiritual mother, she filled up what was lacking in my life. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, I remember at a young age, uh, just loving reading books about Mary. I remember watching the Song of Bernadette when I was young. So, so there's always this fascination about Mary and it inspired me. And when I was in high school, I remember vividly looking at the website for the Mariological Society of America as a high school student <laughs> and saying, one day I want to study Mariology and I would love to go to these things. And I was a weirdo, I think. But, <laughs> but here I am now, a member of the Mariological Society. I'm on their administrative council. I make decisions for them. You know, so it's, it's kind of something that I knew I, I, I knew that God was going to bring me to because that desire was so strong. And what do you think her role is today? I mean, we seem like we've seen this growth, you know, apparitions, devotions, and it just seems like she has a great uh, presence in the church today. Yeah. Why? So what, what, what should we be doing? Maybe the Catholic lay faithful. And that I, I remember my own story, too. I, I was having this conversion experience. I remember I read that she's the mediatrix of all graces. And I'm thinking, well, I need grace, so I really have a devotion sure. to her. Yeah, but she seems like she has a special authority, a special power, privilege yeah. right now. Yeah, and so yeah, you know, in Fatima, Mary said, "In the end, my immaculate heart will triumph." And so perhaps we're living in that age of the triumph of the immaculate heart. Yeah. Uh, but I think that triumph of Mary's immaculate heart could be any time. It could be right now. It could have been fifty years ago if we allow the heart of Mary to really triumph uh, through us. But as you talk about Mary as a mediatrix of grace, I think that's that's the biggest thing. And, and when people in their lives, they have a struggle, what do they do? They, they run to the Blessed Virgin. People will pick up their rosary for the first time in years when they're in the hospital. They will go, I, I remember I interviewed a, a rector of a Marian shrine in Belgium one time. And the rector of the shrine, when we sat down and conversed, he said, he said that, you know, people, People, when they come on hard times, they will never forget the address of Our Lady, meaning that they will always come to her shrine, and they'll light their candle, and they'll say a prayer, and that'll be the entryway back. Yeah. And I think we see that in a lot of the shrines. Uh, sometimes when I go to Lourdes, I'm just struck by like the people that go there and, and who they are. And 
that they're not necessarily believers, but there's something that draws them there. There's something about Mary that draws people in. And once you get to know Mary as our mother, well, then she says, well, I got something, I got someone even better that you need to know. And it's my son, Jesus, who died for you. And I want to tell you his story. And so right. we pray the rosary. And then we ask her intercession and she, she, Jesus chooses to dispense graces through her hands to us. So, um, yeah, it is a special age of Mary and Father Don Calloway would say it's a, the age of Joseph right now. And uh, that I, I think the two go hand in hand. And, mm-hmm. and uh, so truly graces are coming through the spiritual motherhood and spiritual fatherhood of Mary and Joseph. Right. And I, it hit me a few years ago, you know, just the, the importance of John 19 and Mary at the foot yes. of the cross. And, you know, people have written tomes on this and everything. But just personally, it just hit me like, you know, this is such a huge thing <laughs> that out of the heart of redemption, he's dying on the cross. He gives us Mary to be our mother. And it's like, you know, that's a big deal, isn't it? It is, definitely. <laughs> you know, lots of people do Marian consecration. They, they do it uh, through Louis de Montfort. They do it through Michael Gately. You know, the, these, the, the movement of Marian consecration. And, you know, people often ask me to speak. They, they ask a question about Marian consecration at a talk I give. And so the way that I always explain it is that I think Marian consecration is our way of accepting John 19, of us saying, yes, I want Mary to be my mother. And so as my mother now, I'm going to consecrate myself to Jesus through Mary. Yeah. And, uh, and so that's a way that truly we live that. There was a, a, a woman uh, founder of the Focolari movement. Her name's Chiara Lubick. And she has a beautiful reflection on John 19. And she says, we have images of Mary. We, you know, we pray to, to, through her intercession. We do all these things. But do we actually live with Mary? Do we allow Mary to be a part of our life? And do we you know, live our lives as if she's our mother? And so really to welcome her into our homes. And I think that's a beautiful sentiment to, to really have the, the maternal presence of Mary with us wherever we go. Yeah, and like you said, I mean, it, you know, rightly, a proper order devotion doesn't take anything from Jesus. She's pointing us to Jesus. But there's something just human and a fullness to it that we have this mother given to us in the order of grace, a spiritual mother that, you know, that Jesus is starting a transform new humanity. And we just, on a natural level, we need a mother, right? We just, mm-hmm. there's something lacking and, you know, we need a tenderness of Mary. And it just seems appropriate that in our spiritual life, as in our human natural life, we need mothers that give us so much, you know. For sure. And, and yeah, that, that's part of, um, you know, that, that's part of what we call Mary, our spiritual mother. She's our advocate. She's, she's our intercessor. Mm-hmm. And uh, she, she loves her children. And, you know, we started out talking about Marian apparitions. And, and that's Mary's love for the people, saying that in, in your time, there is something going on. And I have this message for you. And I want you to love Jesus more and come back to the church and to live a life of grace. And, and so she comes as a loving mother to us. And, uh, and so she always wants to, to bring the children back uh, to the Lord and to the church. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming and sharing your thoughts and with us and for laboring in the vineyard. <laughs> oh, my pleasure. Mm-hmm.